Let's pray again. Father, it's our privilege to hear your word. And we say with the psalmist today, Lord, your word to us is better than thousands of gold and silver. It's precious to us, O Lord. We love it, and we want to hear from it, and we desire the grace and the strength to obey it. And so, Lord, we, we open ourselves to your spirit now. We pray that you would be our teacher, that you would search us and know us and see if there be any wicked way in us, and today that you would lead us in the way everlasting. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this place, O oh God, may they be acceptable in your sight, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue today um, to uh, consider Paul's uh, long, long argument from chapter 1 to chapter 3, where his entire purpose, by and large, has been to undermine and to erode any confidence that you or I or anyone who might hear this might have that they have enough stuff and enough minerals to escape the judgment of God by, by reason of some degree of inherent goodness. And from chapter 1 to chapter, uh, from chapter 1 verse 18, up until now, Paul, I hope that you'll see by now, has been preoccupied with the wrath of God. He has been preoccupied with the judgment of God. How the gospel, it reveals the wrath of God, which is an aspect of God's righteousness. Paul says the, the righteousness of God is being revealed by the gospel. And then moments later, Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And Paul knows how the human heart works. He knows how my heart works. He knows how your heart works. He knows the nature of sin, that sin will always seek self-justification. Sin always tries to excuse itself. And Paul knows as the gospel goes out to Rome, and as the gospel announces these two things, he knows that as the gospel speaks of salvation, and as the gospel speaks of wrath, he knows that the nature of sin means that many people will say, well, that's not me. Surely I'm not under the judgment of God. You know, when we think about this, this uh, facet of sin, that it always tries to justify itself, that it always tries to excuse itself. It's not an awful lot unlike what we hear in many of the apologies that come our way. People say, I'm really sorry. It's just that. And then they proceed to tell you all the very valid reasons for why they just sinned against you. I'm really, really sorry, but. I'm really, really sorry. It's just that I'm so very tired, you see. And so what Paul does, knowing how people are going to respond, is that he paints pictures. He gets out his canvas, and he gets out his palette, and he gets out his brush, and Paul paints a picture of all of humanity in order to show that there's not one person who can say, well, that's not me. Surely that's not me. And he paints one picture that shows a vast swath of humanity given up to dishonorable passions. 
to a debased mind, people who revel in vice. They not only enjoy sin, but they boast in it, and they suppress the truth of God as they do it. And all of us today know people of that sort. Paul then paints another picture. He paints a picture of the noble. He paints a picture of the virtuous person, the one who looks down their long nose at all the filth in the world, all the immoral pleasure seekers. He paints a picture now of philosophers, of upstanding members of the community, salt of the earth kind of people. And he says to these, as he brushstrokes them, he says, you also suppress the truth of God, you moral man. You also break his law because you don't seek God's glory in your morality. You don't seek the honor that comes only from God. You do not seek everlasting life, but your heart is set on this place. And then the apostle pulls out another canvas, and now he starts to paint the Jew. He starts to paint the one who boasts in Yahweh, who boasts in the law of God, who boasts in being the privileged people of the Lord. And he says, hear this, you hear the law, O Jew, but you don't do it. You're like the geese in Kierkegaard's parable. When the preacher talks about flying, you move your wings excitedly, but when the sermon is all done and all over, you waddle home. And he says here, he says, you love your reputation as teachers, but your reputation can't save you. It doesn't matter what students think of you. They can think the world of you. What matters is what your master thinks of you when he looks at your heart. And when the master looks at your heart, Paul says, he sees this, he sees blasphemy. He sees that it is full of dishonor to God. This, by the way, is why Luther is so very helpful to the church in this matter of God seeing blasphemy in our hearts, because until we understand that we are blasphemers of God, that you and I can so easily blaspheme, Luther says you don't really understand sin. We trivialize it. In fact, we don't pray the Lord's Prayer aright. Luther says the reason that the first petition of the Lord's Prayer is what it is, is that we do not hallow God's name. We are prone, he says, to blasphemy. We don't honor God's name by nature. And then Paul takes his brush and he paints their religious ritual. They're good rituals, he says, but you're hung up on the external and you've forgotten, you've lost sight of the inward reality. You don't know, Paul says, what Jesus means when he says, on the outside, you appear so very righteous. But on the inside, oh religious man, you are full of hypocrisy. And you're full of lawlessness. You just don't get that. And so Paul gives us three portraits. Pagan sinners on one canvas. Lustful, covetous, gospels, slanderers, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless on one canvas. 
And then the other picture, the moral men and the moral women, the ones who lament the immorality around them, who are ashamed of all the moral squalor. And then the Jews, those who boast in their nearness to the law, those who boast in their ritual with flawless consistency, those who love being admired as teachers of God's word. Paul paints them all. And now he brings us to this point in Romans 3.9, and he writes this grand indictment to the church at Rome. He says, both Jews and Greeks, all these three portraits of whatever kind, they are all under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become this. And here's the word that is so very hard for you to hear and for me to hear and for the world to hear. Paul says, they have become worthless. <laughs> no one does good. Not even one. The word worthless here is a very strong word. It's from the verb akreao. Uh, and uh, it carries this sense. It means something that is so frightfully damaged that it can't be used anymore. It has no function anymore, is what Paul is saying. I love my iPad Pro. I love this little device that I have. I use it all the time. I use it to lecture. I use it to, uh, to, to research. I use it to chat. I use it to take photos. I use it to play games. There are so many things I can do with my iPad, and I, I love it. I use it every day. But the one I have now is my second iPad. The first one I got suddenly went dark one day, and no matter what I did, no matter what button I pushed, no matter how feverishly I tried to fix it, the lights wouldn't come back on, and it sat there. Even, even Apple Care couldn't help me. After long discussions and conversations with Apple, they couldn't solve the problem. And all the hardware was there. I suppose all the software was there as well. And on top of that, the machine still looked very sleek. And it still looked very shiny, sitting on my table. But it was terribly broken, and it could not do what it was supposed to do. And so that first iPad Pro was worthless. It was useless. They didn't even fix it. It was beyond repair. And they gave me a new one. The Bible says here in Romans 3 that humanity is terribly broken. It looks good on the surface. It looks sleek and it looks shiny. But humanity cannot do what it was designed to do. God designs men and women to honor the Lord and to love the Lord their God as we heard today in the summary of the law with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their mind. And man in turn makes his own designs. He sets up himself as God and he turns to love his humanity more than the living God. Brothers and sisters, fallen man cannot love God supremely. 
Fallen man cannot love God supremely. They cannot be happy in God supremely. Humanity is fundamentally broken, and as such, fallen man is as dark and as dead as that first iPad screen. It cannot do what it's supposed to do, and Paul says it's useless. It's worthless. It's an incredible indictment, but it's the gospel. And brothers and sisters, we have drifted so very far from what the Bible defines as human sin. And we tend to trivialize it. Or we speak of individual sins rather than referring to the systemic problem. The problem is not the individual sins. The problem, the real problem, is not the symptoms. It's the disease. And the disease, as Paul puts it, is a nature that is fundamentally broken, fundamentally in disrepair, uh, disrepair because it is desperately opposed to God being God. It does not want the Lord to be the Lord. That's how Paul puts it. And you'll notice that he's not being novel here. Paul isn't being innovative. What is Paul doing in Romans 3? He is just quoting Scripture. He quotes Psalm 14, which we read just a moment ago. And Psalm 14 reflects properly the biblical anthropology. I want you to hear again Jeremiah 17, 9. It's a verse that we should remember. It's a verse that we should carry deep in our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the human heart is deceitful in this way. How? It is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately sick. Who could understand it? Desperately sick. The NIV says it is without cure. It is so sick that the cure is not visible. Luther, in his translation here, he calls it, instead of uh, uh, sick or without cure, he says, verzacht. It is despairing. The human heart, it looks at itself, it looks down in the deep pit of its own deceitfulness and its wickedness, and Luther says the human heart simply despairs. There is no end. There is no bottom to the depth of my wickedness. Listen to Paul again. There is not one human being who is righteous. There is not one human being on this planet who does good. In Paul's day, if you were in the court of law and you were being accused of something and you had nothing to say in your defense, you couldn't add any words to your defense, what you'd do, you'd throw your hand over your mouth and say, I have no words to provide to justify myself. And Paul says that here in Romans 3, so that all the mouths of humanity can be stopped. Humanity has nothing to say in its defense, Paul says. No one can say, I have done some things good. Not even Moses. Not Enoch, who walked with God. Not Abraham, not Paul, who called himself the very worst. I am at the bottom of the barrel, Paul says, as far as sinners come. 
Not Mother Teresa. Not Augustine. Not even Martin Luther. What a terrible religion you preach, preacher. What a message of gloom and doom, preacher. Look at your gospel. What a very sad thing. Well, that might be true if Christianity were something like this. If the preacher's message were something like this. You go to the doctor, and the doctor says to you, I've got dreadful news, dreadful news. The tumor is malignant. The cancer that you have is incurable. I cannot help you. You've got six months to live. Pack up your things, get your things in order. The end is coming. If Paul's gospel were like that, then the bad news indeed would be crushing. Then this news that there's no single person who does good would be crushing. But that's not the news. And that's not Paul's gospel. For Paul's bad news is a message of hope. It's not a message of despair. You're terribly sick, the good physician says. You are in grave and in great danger, he says. In fact, if you hadn't come to me today, I don't know if you would have seen the end of the week. And in the grave face of the physician, it breaks and it bursts into a joyous smile. And he says, but this disease, my beloved, is not the end. I have a cure. I can heal you. I can make you well. And I can restore you in such a way that this disease will never, ever harm you again. Who in this scenario... Who would ever say that the bad news was so much doom and gloom when that bad news only prepared us to desire and to receive a cure that is so strong that it can never be defeated? And so can I say something to you very simply today? What we do here every Sunday... And what we're striving to do as a church every week in our teaching, in our praying, in our fellowship, in our gathering around the Lord's table, it can be summed up in these words. We are growing in our capacity to desire and to receive the cure. We are growing in our hunger for the cure. And we are growing in our ability to be filled with the cure. We are making ourselves here more aware of our need, of our brokenness, and our sin. And we are cherishing in deeper and more realizable ways that Jesus Christ is the healer. He's the physician, and he is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And if I can achieve just two things as your pastor, if I, at the end of my life, can lay down my head and make a soft pillow for myself, it would be these two things, that I help you to see the depths of your sin. I help you to see more and more how terrible is the disease of sin. And at the same time, I help you to see the sufficiency of Jesus to save. That he's greater and he's stronger and that he's far more able to do this than you know. Amidst all the uncertainty of your lives, 
amidst all the uncertainty of your lives today, you can know two things. And this is the gospel. As J.C. Ryle says, on our very best of days, we are far worse than we think we are. And on our very worst of days, <laughs> Jesus is far more willing to save than we dare to believe or we dare to hope. And Jesus invites you today in all of your sickness and in all of your sin, in all of your brokenness and uselessness, he invites you to the cure. He invites you today, even now, to feast upon his person. All of his benefits, all that he is. I am the resurrection, he says. And I am the life. He is righteousness. Jesus is health. He is peace. He is wisdom. Jesus Christ, he is love to God. And Jesus Christ, he is love to man. And the wonderful news about the gospel, my brothers and sisters, the wonderful thing about Jesus is that he does not ask us to hide our sin. He doesn't ask us to try and be someone else. He doesn't ask us to cloak it. He doesn't ask us to pretend that we're more righteous than we are. But he asks us to come as we are because there is none righteous. Brothers and sisters, there's none that does good. Not me, not you. There is no one. We don't have to make other people believe that we're pious. We don't have to make other people believe that we're so faithful. What we have to do and what we get to do under the gospel is to confess our sins, confess our radical brokenness, and receive Jesus Christ. That's it. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us his piety. He gives us his faithfulness. He gives us his standing with the Father. The gospel is as simple as that. It's repent and it's believe. What a wonderful message we get to preach every week. And for myself, I want no other gospel. I want no other message, no other drumbeat than that one. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. He gives himself to you. And so as we look today to the Lord's Supper, and as we look to receive from the Lord in all of his fullness as he comes to us clothed in his gospel, let me close uh, today with a hymn from Philip Doddridge. Doddridge writes, Hail, sacred feast, which Jesus makes, rich banquet of his flesh and blood, Thrice happy he who here partakes that sacred stream, that heavenly food. Oh, let thy table honored be and furnished well with joyful guests, and may each soul salvation see that here its sacred pledges tastes. Let crowds approach with hearts prepared, with hearts inflamed let all attend, nor when we leave our Father's board the pleasure or the profit end. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.